When I was in, um, my very last day of boot camp was graduation day. And, uh, you know, it's about t- 12 weeks. And uh, on the final day, you know, you kind of finally get to, it's the first time that you really put on the dress blues. You know, the blue trousers, the uh, black blazer with, you know, the white gloves, white cover. And in kind of one last moment so that the drill instructor could, we could remember, we could have, we could leave boot camp with the right taste in our mouth about just precisely what he thought about us. Uh, He had a stand at attention in our barracks for an hour standing at attention before we go outside. You know what happens if you like stand at attention with your knees locked for an hour, you know? I mean, after about 45 minutes, it's like, I don't know if I can do this anymore. And um, so, but you know, finally we made it out onto the parade deck and we stood for another hour out there on the, on the parade deck. But it's funny, I only remember the discomfort of the first hour. The second hour didn't bother me. And I, you know, I just, you know, I think one of the reasons why you know, the second hour, we're out there, and in, you know, in my mind, I'm thinking about, you know, I'm graduating, you know, Marine Corps boot camp. My father did this, and my grandfather. Um, and I was just, I, I think the thing that changed how long I was standing up was in my mind, one of the things that was happening was that there was, um, there was so much honor that was out there everywhere. You know, there's shared honor for everybody, you know, those of us who had made it through boot camp, our families who were watching, some of the other military officers and uh, people at the base. There was kind of like a shared sense that even though we were in di- different positions, we were all gathered around kind of one, one thing, you know, that it was an honorable thing what it was that we were doing. And it's funny that if in your mind, something that you have in front of your mind's eye, if you're like, well, there's honor in this. It's amazing how much you can withstand when that's kind of the thing that's in your viewpoint. And it's also amazing when you don't have that in front of you, when there is no honor in front of you, how very little that you can do. Because what's going on in your mind has a huge impact on what your experience is like in, you know, in your hands and in your, in your two feet. Um, in just a minute, we're going to turn our attention to the reading of God's Word, the passage that the sermon is based on today. But there's two things about this section of the text that are going to make it hard. One, it's long, and I wanted to give you a bit of a breather so you could sit down before we stand up, okay? The second is it's painful. Um, today, the, the text brings us up to the destruction of the city of Sodom and the city of Gomorrah. Those were two of the main cities, but there were two other cities that were on the, in the plain, in that valley, in the same area, all four of the cities completely devoted to destruction. Completely. There's some sections that are much easier to handle many verses on. And there are some sections that you kind of, you gulp beforehand. Um, but what I wanted to do before we read both a long section and a hard section was to try to set in all of our minds um, the honor of it. The account last week, if you were here, two angels from heaven, I take them to be the archangel Michael, who's especially involved in God's judgment, and the angel Gabriel, who's his special messenger, accompanied the Lord, the Lord God. And the Lord God and these two angels sat down and had a meal with Abraham. God, the Lord God came down. What does that mean, the Lord? You know, many, many times before Mary had her baby boy, Jesus Christ, 
Jesus Christ is the human nature that the eternal Son of God was joined to. But before Jesus was the Son of God, God always has had a Son. From before the very beginning, there has never been a time, there has never in all of existence been a time where God the Father did not have in front of himself an image of himself which is exactly like himself. It's a wonderful thing that God would have, a, would have an eternal son who would reflect back to him a perfect image of himself. All of his character, every wonderful, beautiful, glorious attribute of God the Father, the son possesses it. He possesses all those qualities and to the same degree that the father has. The father looks on an image of everything about himself that is delightful and desirable and beautiful. And he looks on his son and he, his son has every one of those characteristics and to the same degree, and he reflects all of that glory back to the Father. The Father and the Son looking back and forth at each other. The Holy Spirit being the love of God, going back and forth between the Father and the Son. That's what existence was like before anything else existed, before one angel was made. Before Saturn was put in its place, before the Milky Way was stretched out across the sky, the Lord did that. Before any of that happened, before anything, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit were infinitely and joyfully happy in holiness, in total, complete purity, in joy and delight and blessedness and wonder. There was only one problem. And it wasn't a problem with God. God was infinitely happy. Always has been, always will be. There's only one problem. Nobody else got to see it. And so God purposed that his, the glory of who he is, was so beautiful that he must be shared. And out of great generosity, uh, and a positive self-image, you know. Can you imagine being, thinking, I'm so wonderful. I'm... Other people need to know about me. It's very sad that they don't know about me. Doesn't that sound so arrogant? Except this is God. What else could he give you? And he made the heavens and the earth. The eternal son, the second person of the Trinity, made the heavens and the earth. So the Bible tells us everything, everything was made through him. He made it all. And can't you see how majestic he is? To think that he existed before anything else existed. In, I mean, an absolute delight. God's one and only image of himself. Never will be another one like him. Never. Totally unique. Totally majestic. Infinite in his power, in his glory, in his beauty. He is infinitely majestic. Now, I want to ask you a question. What happens when a person achieves a level of superiority in anything? You know, their golf handicap goes down to two, or they get a big promotion at work. They move into that, you know, the house in the neighborhood that everyone looks at. What happens when that happens to one of us? Doesn't that person all of a sudden walk around like, uh, like there's an infinite distance between the world that you live in down here and the world that they live in up here, right? Jonathan Edwards said it's the most amazing thing if one of... Now, this is Jonathan Edwards. He was a Puritan preacher, so brace yourself. He didn't tell any jokes in the pulpit. 
He said, when one worm, that's us, when one worm finds himself in a little bigger of a wormhole, oh, how he does look down on the other worms in his neighborhood. And God, who is infinitely majestic, the Son of God, who is infinite in his beauty and glory, he's so humble. He comes down from his place of divinity with the Father and the Spirit. And he bothers himself to be in heaven among all the angels. And that's him coming down to the angels. The angels, they bow down and worship him because they recognize when, when he comes down into heaven with us, oh, it's so amazing, you know. What do we do when he comes down? And in the account that we're going to read today, this is the Lord, infinite in his majesty and yet so humble. The Bible teaches that he controls everything. Colossians tells us nothing has ever happened in either heaven and earth except he do it. He's in charge. It's his will that happens everywhere, every moment, every day. He is completely, totally, utterly sovereign. Nothing happens outside of his command and jurisdiction. And it was his plan for himself to go to the cross. And he willed himself to remain on that cross the entire time until what he willed to be accomplished at the cross was finished. Isn't he lovely? See, because a story like this, one of the things that has happened in our culture, and we'll see this a little bit later in the sermon, when an overall culture rejects God... They take something else wonderful that God made and they put it in the, in the place of. And we primarily live in a culture that has taken hum, humanity, humanism, and said we don't believe in God, but we believe in the infinite worth and dignity of a human being. And nobody ever better say anything about that. And we put that human there. And what's going to happen today, what might happen in your own mind and heart, you might feel a little uneasy. The people of the city of Sodom declared an utter and complete rebellion against God and said, we want nothing to do with you. And God dealt with that. And one of the things that might happen kind of within us is we might feel our sympathies a little divided. Are you with God? Or does the plight of the people of Sodom stir your compassion more? I'm not pressing on you yet. I'm just saying that if you feel something going on in your mind, this is a hard, this is absolutely a hard, a hard section of scripture to deal with. But when an entire city, an entire civilization looks up at Jesus Christ, the son of God and says, we don't want anything to do with you. What does he do? Okay, with that long introduction, and now with the image of the invisible God right in front of our minds, let's stand. As we listen to the Bible, we don't just hear words that are written down in in the Bible. This is the word of God. Genesis, I'm going to start at chapter 18, verse 22. And I'm going to go through chapter 19. Verse 22. Here, this is the word of God. So the men, these are the two angels, 
turned from there and went toward Sodom. But Abraham stood still before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous and the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing to put the righteous to death with the wicked so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom fifty righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. And Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for a lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find forty-five there. Again he spoke to him and said, Suppose forty are found there. He answered, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, oh, let the Lord not be angry, and I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. He said, behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again, but this once. Suppose 10 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting at the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people, to the last man, surrounded the house. And they called the lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Lot went out to the man at the entrance, shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, Stand back. And they said, This fellow came to sojourn, and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out groping for the door. Then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here? Sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in this city? Bring them out of the place. For we are about to destroy this place because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, Up! Get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. 
So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. And as they brought them out, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, Oh no, my lords, behold, your servant has found favor in your sight. You have shown me great kindness in saving my life. But I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to. It is a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one and my life will be saved? He said to him, Behold, I grant you this, this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zoar. Verse 23. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. And then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord and he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley and he looked and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. And so it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. You made it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, please open up our minds and our hearts. You've ordained that this account be recorded in your word. And you've told us that every word of your word is, you breathe it out. And it's useful to us. Lord, help us put good use to it this morning in the way that you intended. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You can have a seat. What's he going to say now, right? If you went to the nation of Israel right now, went on a little tourist trip, you got on one of those buses, they'd drive you out to the Dead Sea. Dead Sea salty. I think it's so salty people can float in it. That salt's been there a long time. And you just heard the account of how it got that way. A few earlier chapters in Genesis were told that that's not what that land used to look like. Abraham and Lot looked at it from high up above where Abraham could look down on the valley and Lot looked down there and he saw that the, the environment of that valley was so lush and green and fruitful. He, he, could, he, could do, he could put two and two together and say, a land like that that can grow like that, a land that's so beautiful. The Bible said it was lush as the Garden of Eden. God had made it amazingly fruitful and Lot said, I'm going to go live there. It's not that way today. Jesus in Luke 17 was talking to his disciples and told them, remember Lot's wife. And the account told us what happened to Lot's wife. Lot's wife became a pillar of salt. Now that's both literally true. If you go to the Dead Sea now, there are pillars. And there's a Jewish historian named Josephus who was a contemporary of Jesus. They lived at the same time. And in his book, um, book 1, chapter 11, section 4, 
he says that he knew that he had visited and seen Lot's wife. He'd been to that pillar. They knew which one it was. When Jesus said, remember Lot's wife, it's almost certain. He knew exactly which one it was, and the disciples knew which one it was. It's lost to us now. But the important thing is not to know which one of those are there, although it is important for us to remember this story is not an allegory. This is not an Aesop fable or once upon a time in a long, or once, whatever, you understand. It's real, that happened. But in the symbol world of the Bible, for something to be a pillar, to be a pillar is to be a memorial. Anytime God acted in a supreme way where, where a situation totally turned in the opposite direction because of God's intervening hands-on action from heaven, when something like that happened, what they would do is build an altar, stack up rocks on top of each other and make a pillar right there. Never forget this is the exact spot where God put his hands on the situation and don't ever forget it. Put up a pillar. Lot's wife became a pillar but a pillar of salt. Now that's both literal, but it's also symbolic. It tells us something. We know from reading the rest of the Bible, and one of the things that we've been looking at over and over in the book of Genesis is we've been learning the vocabulary of the Bible by learning the symbol world of the Bible. For instance, salt in the symbol world of the Bible, salt is solid fire. This is why the Bible talks about there being a lake of fire and the place that it points to as a symbol of the lake of fire is the, is the Dead Sea. It's this lake of salt. Because it was fire that descended and it's a memorial fire. There's salt right there and we know that, right? When there's ice on the road, what do you throw down on the road? Because you need, you need some heat. You need some solid heat that's going to melt that ice. What do you put on the road? Salt. This would make us think twice about what did, what did Jesus mean when he said, you're the, you're the light of the world and the salt of the earth. And there she is. And Jesus told his disciples, don't never, never forget her. I got to be honest, if you're doing a series on Genesis, you know how tempting it is to go, let's skip this chapter. Lord, can't we, let's move on. And Jesus got his disciples says, don't ever forget her. Don't forget what happened to her. Remember her. He went on to say, there'll be a couple that's in bed. One will be taken to be with the Lord and the other is going to be left out of the kingdom. And what he's telling us is you, you might think that there is a lot of similarities between you and somebody else. Because they, I mean, both Lot and his wife got rescued at the real last minute. You could see in Lot that there was like, I don't want to go. We don't want to read too much into that because, you know, Peter, Peter writes about this event and tells us that Lot was righteous and that he was vexed. That living in the city of Sodom around that kind of sin was a terrible emotional experience for him to be that close to it. So we don't want to read too much into that. But Lot thought he and his wife were out. Honey, work. And she looked back. And it can't be that she was just like, I wonder what's going on back there. Look back and then... You know, 
Because God already said when he was talking to Abraham, Abraham asked him. Basically, Abraham asked him, are you a good judge? Or will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked in thoughtless actions? And God's not like that. His judgments are perfect. All the way to the bottom. And what Lot found out, and what we all found out, and what Jesus said, don't ever forget Lot's wife. She appeared to be righteous by being married to Lot. But you can't marry into Christianity. And you can't just hang around with other people and, and be Christian. Christianity is from the heart. Why did, she turn, why did she turn around to Sodom? And the word the Bible uses when it said turned is physically turned and was going to go back. Why? Because she loved it there. I mean, there, I have to be honest with you. There are many places where if I told you, you know, while I'm reading this, you should have, you know, be painting for yourself a pretty vivid picture of what's going on. That's one of the ways that you can glean from the Bible is try to, try to really use the details that are given and paint a vivid picture. What do you think it was like that day when fire came down from heaven and consumed an entire city and everything growing on the ground? Where could they go? What part of the house could they get into where it wasn't fire? Where could they run to around the next corner to get away from it? Where can you go to get away from God? What's the answer to that question from the Bible? Where can you go to get away from God? Nowhere. And Jesus said, remember Lot's wife. Because everybody has to deal with God. What was it like for Lot that night? You got two angels in the house, and I mean, the account in Genesis made it real clear. Everybody came out. All the men from all four corners of the city. I think what that means, there are four cities that got destroyed because there were five cities. Lot fleed to one of those cities and because he was there, that city was saved. The other four cities were four cities that were destroyed. So when the Bible says that men from all four corners of the city of Sodom came, my understanding of that is men from all four towns got word. There was two beautiful men who arrived in Sodom and we want to go have them. And I can't protect you from what the Bible's telling you. They wanted them badly. The entire town. And I mean, I don't... Two angels in your house. And at least Lot was a good host and went, out on the, went outside the door and said, Man, you don't want to do this thing. But what he offered up as the solution... They wanted, they, they wanted Lot to give them the men and they told him, here's what the night's going to look like. It was going to be terrible. And that was in their heart. That's what they wanted to do. 
And then Lot's, no, don't do that. I'm going to give you my daughters, which in and of itself sounds terrible. Doesn't that sound terrible? And did you notice what the men of the city accused Lot of doing when he offered that? They said, Lot, you're being so judgmental of us. Did you notice that? What in the world happened here? See, Scripture tells us that no city, no city turns into this overnight. God had been so patient with this city for so long. The Bible tells us in Ezekiel that the beginning of this whole problem happened because even though all the soil around Sodom was so rich, so rich in nutrients, the environment was set up perfectly for them to be extremely fruitful. They built that city up with a great amount of wealth, and that wealth was built on God's blessing and provision for them. What should they have done based on being able to gain an immense amount of wealth because God making the land incredibly fruitful? What should they have done? They should have honored him and they should have thanked him. And because they did not honor him and thank him, the Bible in Ezekiel tells us that they became arrogant. Here's what they said in their own hearts. Look at what it is that we have done. We have made ourselves so rich and wealthy. And God had nothing to do with it. It was strictly our own genius and wonderful abilities. Let me ask the question. Um, Does that sound so implausible that we can't imagine a society in our day ever doing that? See, sometimes what we can do is distance ourselves from an account like this because... um, Are you ever in an argument with somebody that you really love and care about? For example, your spouse. Does that ever happen to anybody here? And in that argument, do you ever find yourself in the position where you're judging yourself based on your intentions, but judging them based on their actions? So that you're assuming the best for yourself and assuming the worst for them. Does that ever happen to anybody here? Only the pastor? Okay. Okay, fair enough. Or do you ever, um, you know, do you ever comparing yourself to a coworker at work who seems like they're really getting ahead and what you do to feel better about yourself is you compare you on your best day to them on their worst day? And isn't that a bit of a defense mechanism that helps you feel better about yourself and distant from them? Okay, again, only the pastor. All right. What can happen is what we can do is go, oh, you know, life here, my, you know, this isn't, we're not Sodom here. But Sodom didn't start out being Sodom. What, what they started out with was the very seed that blossoms into the kind of wickedness that we see at full fruition in the city of Sodom is just two things. God pours out his blessing on you and he surrounds you with all these good things that are gifts of his. And you take these good gifts of his and use those good gifts of his to insulate yourself from him. So I'm not going to honor him. I'm not going to worship him. I'm certainly not going to give my everything to him. But I will take everything from him. And Romans chapter 1 just, I mean, plainly lays this whole thing out. (coughs) The sin of declaring independence from God. That is the the entry ramp onto a highway to hell. I, I know that's a cliche. I'm talking literally. 
if you don't honor God and if you're not going to thank him. But Romans will go on and tell us, but you can't actually functionally live without God. Because God created you to worship, you don't have a choice of whether you will worship or not. You do have a choice of what you will worship. And this is why Jesus, when Jesus says, remember Lot's wife. On the outside, she's going to look very much like she, yeah, she belongs in the church. But in her, inside of her, it was the same thing happening in her that was happening in the, in the people of Sodom. That's why she shared their fate. Because you don't get, you don't get to choose whether you're going to worship something or not. In Romans, it tells us for anybody who says they're going to reject God, that's the entry ramp. And the very next step is, okay, I'm not going to worship God, but I have to worship. That's what I'm made to do. So I'm going to choose something else to worship. And Romans tells us there's two very obvious things that, that human beings will grab hold of to worship. And that is the things that are closest to the beauty and wonder of God. And there are two things that are so close to the beauty and the wonder of God, they are, they are so easy to reach and grab hold of and say, I'm going to make this my ultimate. You want to know what one of those is? Man. Mankind. The Bible tells us that man is the glory of God. And so it's not surprising if people reject God. And all of his holiness and all of his glory and all of his splendor, they'll take something real close and say, I'm going to put people at the center of my life. That ever happened to you? Okay, full confession, it happens to me. On a day like today when I'm like, Lord, I have to preach a message on Sodom and I know there's going to be a ton of people. I'm going to see people and I can see this happen. I'm going to see people over in that section going to, you know, right after I say something, they're going to wait an okay amount of time and they're going to stand up and walk up the aisle and they're not going to the bathroom because they don't even come back in. Um, it's hard sometimes to open up the Bible and say, this is what God says it. When I know there's going to be people who are listening who are like, I hate that guy. I hate when he talks like that. Any people pleasers in the room? When you got to make a decision, it's like, this is what God tells me to do, this is what the Bible tells me to do. But man, I, it's going to mean something for my relationships, and that's going to be hard, and I don't want that. Here's what I'm saying Jesus said, Remember Lot's wife. Because he wanted us to not forget the story of Sodom. And the reason why is because he wanted us to not put Sodom at arm's distance because the extremity of what it was that they were doing to recognize, man, that's... Even if you're only one mile down the road that's a hundred miles from fire and brimstone, the only difference between them and you is time and distance. This is the hardest thing to swallow about the Bible. The Bible holds forward for us two, two total extremes. Everybody who can hear me right now, in 10,000 years, there's only two options for where you're going to be. Only two. 
And they are so far apart from each other as to be, I mean, almost incomparable. Jesus was in his hometown of Capernaum and said, He said, This town of Capernaum is worse than Sodom. Because if they would have seen my ministry, it would have, it would have been better for them. And the rest of the New Testament oftentimes compares cities to being like Sodom. And the point over and over again is there is a final destination of the lake of fire and many, many cities are going to, you know, they don't look that way now, but that is where they're going to end up when they come to full fruition. That's one destination. And everybody who refuses to honor God and thank him. They might only be at mile marker one, but it's only time and distance is the only difference between them and that. And the Bible teaches us that everybody is on that road. Did you notice how Lot got out of Sodom? How many times the angel said, no, no, no. Now, get up, get out. And isn't it like watching one of those horror films where the people like, just get in the car and drive away. Yeah, you dropped your wallet. Who cares? Leave your wallet, survive. And they stop the car, put it in park, get out and get the wallet. You're like, no. You know, the angels keep saying, get out of here. And he won't go. They grab him by their hands, and this is not the first time. Two different times, the hands of angels grab hold of these guys, grab hold of Lot, and save him. The first time, those men in Sodom are going to get him, and they said, we're going to do worse to you than what we plan to do to the two angels. You imagine what that night would have been like for Lot. We're going to do worse to you. Angel hands grabbed him, pulled him inside, saved him. He was still in the city of Sodom after all that. And the angels had to grab him, pick him up, and take him out. There's only one way anyone ever gets out. The hands of the Lord reaching down and grabbing a hold of you and rescuing you. Um, I don't know if you saw this week, uh, Christianity lost a great one. Did you guys see that Tim Keller died this last week? Somebody who more than anybody in my life helped me see the real beauty of God's sovereignty over salvation. That left to ourselves, none of us would choose him. that before you chose him, he chose you. Before Lot was rescued, how did it, how did it begin? Angels grabbed a hold of him and they warned him and warned him and then pulled him out. And Jesus told his disciples, remember Lot's wife. So I want to remember her. 
Think of how many times she went to church with Lot. She lived in his house. How many times she was, you know, involved in making sacrifices and worshiping on the outside. Just think of, if you would have just watched the two of them, you would have assumed, oh, they're in this, yeah. No. Christianity is something that happens to you, and Christianity is something that happens to you at the deepest level. Your heart changes. The Bible tells you that to become a Christian is to have something happen to you for God with his hands to reach in, to take out your heart of stone, your dead heart, and to give you a heart of flesh, which means for the first time, a heart that is alive to God. And then with that heart that's now alive to God, that desires righteousness and holiness, that wants to pursue and run towards him, you use the new heart that God has given you and you run as far away from the city of Sodom as you possibly can. As far away from a city that will not honor God nor thank him. And you, you put your running shoes on and you move. And another person could sit in church services, a thousand of them could have gone to catechism, could have been through planted, alpha, sat through the, you know, the Genesis series up to this point. But not God through a heart change. And I don't, I don't want to go walk away from this story without the main point that Jesus brought out of this text being the main point that we have for this today. Has that happened to you? Do you think about yourself as a, not a member of the city of Sodom because you have an association to somebody else that's holy or righteous? My dad brought me to church. My grandma gave me a Bible verse when I was little. I went to Sunday school growing up. And for sure, you know, I think right, I vote right, and I'm definitely not a member of, of the city of Sodom. I don't approve of any of those kinds of things. That's not what it means to be a Christian. What it means to be a Christian is to have something happen to you on the inside. And how, does, how do you know? How does that happen? You know? All I have to do is ask you the question, how do you feel about Jesus? And one of the reasons I started out letting you know that the person who's pouring out fire and brimstone from heaven and destroying the city of Sodom utterly, you know who did that? Jesus did. Because there's plenty of people like, how do you feel about Jesus? They go, oh, I love that guy. He's all about peace and harmony and everybody getting along. I love that guy. And I go, okay, peace and harmony? Remember when he said, I didn't come to bring peace, I came to bring a sword? And he did this. And some other people are like, yeah, that's right, Jesus is the judge in Revelation. He's going to come with the sword on a stallion, and he's, you know, no one's going to make a fool of him. He's going to take care of business. And I go, that is true, but he's also the one who said he's meek and mild, humble. It's very easy to invent a Jesus of our own imagination by taking one of the characteristics of God, his holiness, majesty, and power, and saying that's what he is, and ignoring his humility. Or to take his, his humility and sort of come up with a hippie version of Jesus that just, you know, free love everywhere. And forget, mm, where's the one place that you can never be fooled about that? Abraham looked right at him and said, you're the judge of the earth and I want to know, are you a good judge? 
Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Will he? Well, then what's going to happen to you? Because the Bible says that there's no one righteous, not one. Ah, but there is. Scripture teaches that God made him who knew no sin. That's Jesus Christ, who knew no sin. The Bible says he made him sin for us. He made him wicked and swept him away. And on the cross, he looked up into heaven and he cried out, My God, my God, where are you? I'm swept away. Why have you forsaken me? I can't see your face for the first time ever for all eternity. Jesus could not reflect back and see the face of his heavenly father. For the first time, he was lost. Why? Because he was becoming sin for those who God would save so that they could be declared righteous. They could be the righteousness of God. And he did it by doing it himself. Can't you see right there? You see all the holiness and all the justice. I mean, the absolute unstoppable justice of God that we want. And the total, complete mercy of God. Jesus is up there on the cross doing his own will. He said, nobody takes my life. I'm doing this willingly. I'm going to put my hands on some and I'm going to save them. And the way I have to do it is I have to become their wickedness so God could sweep me away. Now, if you can walk out of here and go, yeah, who cares about that? I want to plead with you. What have you done with Jesus Christ? Where have we seen such holiness and majesty and humility meet together? And even though you might feel like I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not. I sure I sin from time to time, but I don't need Jesus to do that for me. It's never going to turn like that. I just want to say, please, please. All right, would you stand? Let me close in a prayer. Heavenly Father, this, is, this section of scripture is terrible and wonderful. It's wonderful for us to know no one will ever get away with anything. Either their punishment and condemnation is awaiting for them, or it was already paid for them on the cross. And Lord, I pray that even this morning, anybody here who's, who the blood of Christ has not forgiven and brought real true forgiveness... Lord, I pray, make them uncomfortable. I do pray that this message of waiting judgment at the end of life, I pray they can't shake it. And I pray that you would use it to warn them. And Lord, for everybody else in here who are former members of the citizen, or former citizens of the city of Sodom, who are our sin, maybe it was early on in its growth. Maybe we were only liars and swindlers and cheats. took out our little hearts of stone that were on their way to destruction and you gave us a new heart that's on its way to heaven Lord and there's only one reason you did that because of Christ Lord let us honor him and thank him in everything that we do I pray this in Christ's name